slash and cast. All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with actor Philip Shabazz about perseverance, his pilgrimage through the Middle East, Altair, Assassin's Creed, and more. And if you're out there listening to this and you feel so inclined, please leave us a review. Really helps us out a lot. Anyway, folks, without further ado, here you go. My name is Altair Ibn Lahad, and you're listening to Monsters, Madness, and Magic. and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. Take us back in time to when you were a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? Yeah, well, no forts because I was in Chicago. No books because I was surrounded by Legos and Star Wars toys <laughs> in a house with immigrants. My parents moved to Chicago, Illinois in 1970 from the Middle East. My dad was from Iraq, Iran. My mom was from Lebanon. He went to university in Lebanon, met my mom. They came to Chicago in 1970. I was born in 1974, Rogers Park, North Side near Evanston. And basically my childhood, basically I've got a brother and he's 10 years younger than me. So I was pretty much an only child for most of my you know, childhood. It was just me in my room upstairs in the condo, you know, latchkey kid. It was just me listening, just watching the Three Stooges, Batman, Star Trek, Gilligan's Island, just all those shows. Everybody Loves Lucy on a loop while I played with my Lego Exxon station uh, <laughs> or, or with my Star Wars toys. That was it. And so what I had was my imagination in that upstairs room in that condo growing up. My dad was a huge movie fan. Like, he loved movies, even back in the old country. He was a big Audie Murphy fan, uh-huh. loved Tarzan, loved Zorro, loved Westerns. In the States, I mean, he would, he loved movies, he chased movies, and he would take me to movies. And so, like, if, if there was a Zorro release, we were there. If there was something Tarzan, we were there. And so, by about 1980, there was a uh, re-release of the original Star Wars. He took me to that uh, and then basically Empire Strikes Back right afterwards. And there's that, you know, that group of movies that a lot of our guys, guys in our generation just really came up with. So to me, there's this like, there's a group of untouchable films, which includes Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Ghostbusters, that are just, that are the foundation for where I'm at today and my imagination today, of course. Those are true classics, right? Larry just named like, sure. untouchable ones. Were your parents involved in the arts at all? Where does that... Is there a eureka moment or something you can point to to where you kind of dove in that direction where you pushed that way or anything? 
mean? Dude, I only just learned that back in the old country, my dad was in a like a in a commercial for a soft drink called Shabby, which is like an orange crush sort of type oh, drink. Wow. And and somehow my mom dug up these old cockeyed headshots of my dad and all these weird costumes. He was trying to be an actor back in the old country before he went to university and decided to do something different. My dad, for most of his life, like he came to Chicago to be a, a Presbyterian minister. That's mm. what he was. And so there's a large population of Assyrians in Chicago. My dad's Assyrian, A-S-S-Y-R-I-A-N. And so that's why he went to Chicago. That's why they went to Chicago. So my dad, he is a joyful, wonderful, magnetic presence. And his entire life was about speaking, especially like in the Middle Eastern community, in the Syrian community, being the pastor of a community was like being the community organizer. Yeah. You help people with their immigration papers. You help people, people as a counselor in the home. You help people in all different ways. So I grew up watching my dad speak and be involved in people's lives, you know, the, yeah. my, my entire life. Now, when I was 10 years old, I moved from Chicago to a place called Turlock, California, which is just right at the center of California. Small town, cows and grass. It was so tiny, just like sweet potato fields. It was there that once I got to high school, it, in addition to movies and TV being so important to me as a kid, I latched onto baseball. Baseball was uh -huh. huge to me. All I wanted to do was play baseball or play with my Star Wars toys, and then eventually Transformers, then a little bit of GoBots, and then it was just baseball. And so in high school, I just was all about sports up until... Like my sophomore year, they, uh, they were casting Music Man. So I was like, oh, I'll audition for that. And I got a part. And at my high school, they just did a musical every two years. They did another one of my senior year called Come Back Little Sheba. Again, I got a part and just really enjoyed the process. Took one of our acting classes through the high school, enjoyed that. But when I went to college, I didn't have any thoughts or ideas of pursuing acting as a career. In fact, in my dad's culture, you don't even leave the house until you're like, you have a master's degree or a PhD mm -hmm. or you're getting married. So when I graduated high school, my dad was like, you're not leaving, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> and and I just felt like if I stay in this small town, the world is gonna spin and I'm not gonna be able to do anything with my life. Like I could feel it, I could sense that burden. And so finally, like I went to JC one year, played baseball for JC and then decided to apply for schools behind my dad's back. I just said, whoever gives me more money for baseball, I'm going. And so I got one one school in San Diego, one school in Washington. Washington gave me more money, so I just straight left. Had never been to the campus, never been to Washington, only saw pictures on a brochure. I just left and went to Washington and started playing baseball. Didn't even get out of winter ball because of tendonitis. I had bad tendonitis in my arm, couldn't throw. The school was having a, you know auditions for Comeback Little Sheba. It's a wonderful play. I said, oh, I'm just gonna you know, throw my hat in the ring. And I got a really great part in the show. It became clear that I was not going to be able to proceed with baseball that year. And our theater, chair of our theater department was just like, hey, if you want to declare a theater major, we'll take all that scholarship money from baseball and give it to you for theater. And so I said, you got it. And there's also this like, Justin, there's like this immigrant guilt thing where it's like, man, I can't just declare for theater because my parents, all they've been through working class, sacrificing a lot, like, yeah. it's, I can't be a doctor and I can't be an engineer. I don't have the math and I don't have the patience for this one. What is it? Like, I got to do something that feels credible, meaningful to them, something they'll understand. So I declared theater and communications and just told my parents, hey, I'm just doing this theater thing for fun. I promise I'm, I'm doing right by you guys. I'm, I'm majoring in communications. And I thought, like, as my junior year approached, I thought I was going to be a, a newscaster. And I did one summer internship at KXLY News 4, and I said, screw that. <laughs> the newsroom is hell at 6 o'clock. That was not for me. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And so what happened was, 
as I continued, you know, in the theater program, I really did just fall in love with the whole process. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like I loved theater, but what I learned was that movies are what moved me at that time. Mm. Between my junior and senior year, and and growing up in a, in a conservative Middle Eastern house, I wasn't allowed to watch rated R movies. You know, we went to these you know, these fun Indiana Joneses and Star Wars, but we never watched anything more. And so, right. honestly, I got to college really green. And so, the summer between my junior and, senior, junior and senior year, I got this job at the library in the media section of the library mm-hmm. between like 5 p.m. and midnight, something like that. Nobody came in. Nobody cared about the media <laughs> department during the summer. So, what I would do is I'd just go to the video store and rent like two movies a night. And that's where I did them all. Like I did Terminator, I did Alien. I just watched movie after movie after movie and was like, holy crap, there is a, a whole new world, world out there yeah. <laughs> that I did not realize. And after that, it was like, I'm stuck. I loved movies after that. But even after graduation, like I still felt like I couldn't pursue it. So I was like, okay, mom, dad, I'm gonna get a master's degree in higher education. I love the college atmosphere. I can do a lot of things at the same time. I'm gonna pursue that, maybe be a dean of students someday. And I did that because because just I started acting really late, like professionally acting pretty late, like yeah. when I was 31, 32. You know, did the university thing, came down to LA, worked at a couple different universities. And at a certain point I was like, you know, just talking to my wife, like I'm working so much and I love what I did, but I'm doing it so much. I've lost sort of everything that motivates me, that moves me. I'm not exercising anymore. I'm not playing baseball or basketball anymore. I'm not watching movies anymore. And then I said, you know, like, would you be okay if I uh, just auditioned for this play? At the time, we're in this place called Redlands, California, this town. And they had a really wonderful theater. We'd see Neil Simon play there. I said, hey, they're doing some Shakespeare over there. Would you mind if I went and auditioned for a Midsummer Night's Dream? And I got the role of bottom and had the most incredible experience doing that while doing my job. Ended up just making a lot of relationships, having a great time. But then I got promoted and lost all of it again. And then I was even more stressed, more far away from the things that I loved. And I said, Amy, would you mind if I took just an on-camera class for fun? Can I just do that for fun? And she's like, absolutely. So I did that. That turned into a a scene study, the scene study turned into more more classes. That turned into headshots. Headshots turned into me booking my first job, and then I was off after that. I feel like I cannot even now. I want to chase it. Right. I can't stop chasing it, chasing the next job, like chasing the next thing. It totally mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. It totally is. And and I remember like the moment. Like I was watching. I think it was 1970 or 1998 Oscars, and the movie that took it from being something fun to being something meaningful and substantive was LA Confidential. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've seen it just, but LA Confidential, Curtis Hansen directed that movie, Russell Crowe, that movie, I remember at the Oscars, them talking about the lighting and talking about all these different facets of the movie and how it came together. And at that point, that's when I really started to look at things differently, which led to the cat classes, etc. led to the headshots, led to the first job. So you, you mentioned that you grew up in a conservative Middle Eastern house. Uh... Yeah. When your parents do finally realize or you tell them how much you're enjoying this or you want to pursue this, was there ever any pushback? There was never any pushback because I had I had taken and shown them I'm going to do right by them by getting a real like a real job, quote yeah. unquote, doing right by my family, doing right by them. And then I was doing this thing on the side. And as it got bigger and bigger and bigger, and as they started to see me on TV and started to see me in different places doing this, all of a sudden their hands were off. Mm-hmm. Um, another reason why I put it on the acting on the back burners, I had an uncle, my dad's brother, 
who came to Hollywood and just wanted to be a player right away and tried to be a producer and would tell me these crazy stories. Oh, Cameron Diaz was in my office and I kicked her out. Not just these, it just it felt wrong. And he maxed out his credit cards on, on some production and then just ended up back in Turlock living with my grandma. And that like cast a shadow over the industry for so long that it really did add to that sort of guilt to please my parents. And, and that's like, in a nutshell, that is why it took me so long to finally dive in head first. That's funny because, like you just said, you mentioned your, your dad was doing commercials back in the day, then your uncle went to Hollywood, so it's it's in your blood and you didn't even know it all this time. To- totally. Know? Absolutely. And, I, dude, I just learned the, the thing about my dad. It was this, this year. I'm 47 <laughs> years old, man. Hey, you learn something new every day, I figure. Okay. <laughs> so after the Shakespeare play, how long did you tinker around with theater before that first professional opportunity presented itself? I did plays all the way through college, and then after college, did a wonderful one-man show called Damien about a Catholic priest to Catholics listening will know Damien Divastur, Father Damien, goes to Hawaii to be a missionary, but then becomes the missionary of a leper colony, and then basically dies of leprosy. It's a really powerful story. It's an amazing show written by Albert Morris. One-man show, two acts. It was a monster to tackle. I did that shortly after college, and that was the last production I did after college until I finally got to Midsummer Night's Dream. Between Midsummer Night's Dream and my first class, my first acting class, uh, to just dip my toes in the water, there wasn't anything in there that I was doing theater-wise, except going to theater and going to the movies. Right. Is that something you still you still enjoy, going to theater? Or do you still want something yeah. you want to do, maybe? Yeah, it is. So... It's not something I can do right now. Believe it or not, I got four 15-year-olds. I have quadruplets. And they're born in 2007, just as my acting career was taken off. Like, 2007 was a big year. Booked three really great shows, booked Assassin's Creed. Things were off and running. And, you know, there are, there are holes in my resume. And the reason why there are holes in my resume is because one of my boys was diagnosed with leukemia at about two and a half years old. And then after three and a half years of treatment, all of a sudden epilepsy started and then his leukemia relapsed and then his leukemia relapsed twice. And then he had a bone marrow transplant just before COVID like 2019. Mm -hmm. And so there are big sections where I've had to book out completely. And in one case through the whole, like the whole epilepsy period, I had to book out completely from theatrical and just find a commercial aid, like a commercial voice agent. And that's what I did. So for a really long time there, I just, because I could audition from home and do a lot of stuff from home, I did a ton of commercial voice all the way leading up to COVID. And then since COVID was able to ramp up again and just have been really thankful and really successful to just do a lot of really cool projects in the past couple of years. I'm glad to hear that for you. And I'm glad your son's doing better. He is good. Yeah. Thank you, man. So how did the first screen opportunity present itself to you eventually? It was an audition for FX show called Over There. It was a TV show about the military in Iraq. And there had happened to be one episode where the, the boys are going to recruit four Iraqi soldiers. And that was my first job. It was a reoccurring job. And it was a week on set on, an, on a show by Stephen Bochco. And uh, his son directed it. And I just remember his words after that. He was very clear. He was like, hey, man, I'm going to make it my life's work to get you again. He still hasn't. So I'm going to hold it to him at some point. <laughs> I think he will. Me something else. But yeah, that was the first one. That was like late 2006. And then as I got to 2007, that led to like Sleeper Cell, the E-Ring. After that, it was the, the Californication pilot, which is two of the best days I've ever had in Hollywood. And then Assassin's Creed in 2007. 
How did that first TV spot feel for you? You know, you, you started late, you started in theater, and you're like, damn, man, I'm finally here. Like, even though... You know, yeah, it was great confirmation. I've told folks that I, I'm sort of like, I'm not good at one particular, like, really great at one particular thing. I could do a lot of different things okay. Mm-hmm. But the one thing I do have is hustle. I will hustle and hustle and hustle and hustle. Can't replace and that. When people are sleeping, I'll be working at night. To finally have gotten onto set was a very meaningful moment for me. And it's just a testament like out there to anybody who's like, man, I'd love to do this. I'd love to pursue this. It takes hustle. Like you've got to keep pursuing it. You've got to keep going. You've got to keep grinding, keep grinding, keep grinding. No doesn't mean anything. All of Hollywood is no. It doesn't matter. You keep going and you keep going and eventually you get a yes. And so to be there on that set was just so meaningful. And it was very, very physical. They had us running up mountains, the whole entire thing. And just because... I've been in sports and, and, and generally fit for most of my life. I didn't have a problem with any of that. And so it was a ton of fun. I forgot to ask you earlier, what position did you play in baseball? Were you a pitcher? Yeah. So, yeah, I pitched. Had a nasty split finger fastball. I remember watching a Roger Clemens interview where uh, he said he would sleep with the ball in his fingers at night to stretch his fingers out. So that's what I started doing. So by my sophomore year, by my freshman year, I made varsity, but I started pitching sophomore year and just would hammer people with that with that <laughs> split finger fastball. But that's probably why I got tendonitis and was out of the game so quickly. <laughs> hey, man, but, you know, emulating the greats is how you get somewhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Phil, let's talk Assassin's Creed. Was that just your typical audition or was it right place, right time kind of situation? How'd that happen? Yeah, so it did not come through my agent. I had never done any voice before. There's this uh, consultant. Anytime, like in Hollywood, you got a lot of different consultants that work with a variety of different areas. And there's a particular consultant, Sam. He does a lot of Arabic. Anytime there's Arab stuff involved, he's the consultant. And he's also sort of a player in Hollywood. So every now and then, he will call you with an opportunity or an audition or something like that. Sam just calls me out of the blue and says, hey, man, there's this uh, voice job. It's for a video game. The audition is on such and such day. Can you make it? And I remember the place. It was a casting office. was a studio right there on the corner of Hollywood and Highland. When I got there, it was a room full of dudes who looked just like me. I mean, it felt like every Middle Eastern and Middle <laughs> Middle Eastern adjacent actor was in that room running sides. It was a series of four auditions. And in the first audition, they were like, hey, we want a, a good, strong Middle Eastern accent. So I give them a good, strong Middle Eastern accent. Call back. Hey, great Middle Eastern accent. We want you to, to just bring it, dial it back just a little bit. Third audition. Again, great Middle Eastern accent, but we want you to dial it back just a little bit more. Fourth audition, again, you did a great job with that accent, but we want you to dial it back even just a little bit more <laughs> until finally I got the job and was cast as Altair. And then the we did Assassin's Creed in three days, three, four-hour days. This is an interesting time in video games. There's a lot of amazing video games that came out in 2007. And it sort of was like a shifting point in video games because prior to Assassin's Creed and some other games in 2007, you had the Prince of Persia's that was still a little bit cartoony, still a little bit, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And Assassin's Creed, do you remember the game trailer for Assassin's Creed? Off the top of my head, I don't, but I I know I had to see it. You gotta look it up, man. That game trailer still today holds up. It was the first sort of game trailer that was completely and totally cinematic as this hooded figure walks through this crowd. Yeah. The camera is shaky. The eagle's over him. And then he, you know, he throws a blade at some dude, jumps up and then pulls that, unclips the, the blade on his hand and just assassinates somebody on this podium. It was amazing. And, and I had not seen that while I was auditioning. I had not seen that even when I got the job. It just was 
I went to the job on the first day. They plunk 365 pages down. And, and I, I had not seen a word until I got there. Here's 365 pages. Let's go. <laughs> and saw some artwork, uh, some animatic stuff for the character and just got to it. But it wasn't until after that first day of work, I was like, I got to look this up. And sure enough, I found that game trailer and I was like, holy crap, this is incredible. And you know, the other interesting thing about that day is that, so I told you about the four auditions and we're shaving the Middle Eastern accent the whole way through. Yeah. And so now I'm on that light Middle Eastern accent as we start the day. And I, I get going and the director says, hey, we're going to go ahead and have you lose the accent completely. And I was like, okay, are you? Are you sure? And so, and if you've played the game now, you'll notice that everybody else has a Middle Eastern accent except for Altair. Altair mm. is like the only one that does not have a Middle Eastern accent. And in fact, during the recording, we recorded a ton of Arabic stuff. And I think that like on, upon reflection, I think that's partly why they cast me is that I'm American born and clearly do not have a Middle Eastern accent, right? But I've grown up around it. So whether it's a Persian accent, Lebanese, Egyptian, I can sort of pull them all because I've grown up around them. Right. And I think that I had maybe the ability to sort of sound sort of robustly American in a way, yet at the same time pull the Arabic. By the time the game came out, they'd cut all the Arabic out. So it was pretty clear there was a choice there with Altier's character to veer away from the Middle Eastern side. There was never any explanation as to why they chose that route? No, I've just sat here wondering for 15 years. <laughs> Now, were you doing motion capture as well, or were you just doing the voice? No, it was just standing in a studio by myself with the writer and the engineer and the director behind the glass. And the other thing I remember from that day was Nick Lachey was recording in the studio right next. Was Jessica <laughs> yeah, Simpson we, there? So that was exactly the time. Well, after they tell you to shave back the accent, is there any direction after that? So the hope is with the voice work in particular is the director's going to try and direct you into a box. Once you get into that box, you live in that box and then you move forward. And that's very much what it was mm. as in, a, in, in my experience with Assassin's Creed. Justin, that's the only video game I've ever done. Done a bunch of audiobook stuff, done a ton of commercial, but that's the only video game I've ever done. And I don't know today if you get to see this script in advance. I would think, I would hope that if I was given another part like this at some point, that I'd have the pages in front of me so that I could understand the story, understand where the character is coming from, and do my due diligence as I get into this, just like I would with any other theatrical part. Right. And I'm not an expert at all either, but I believe with something like Red Dead Redemption, how they have a continuous story, they yeah. bring in the same voice actors, and of course you get a script. So were you a uh, gamer at all growing up, or was this your first foray into it? Here's the thing. I could get lost in it. I mean, I could get lost. I could get lost if I let myself, I'm done, right? If I let myself, I'm done. Yeah, dude, Atari, I was on it. Uh, in television, I was on it. Nintendo, I was on it. I can't tell you how much time we wasted on Sonic the Hedgehog in college. And uh, what's it called? Uh, what was that football? John, it wasn't John Madden football. The football game still to this day could get lost in it. And so I follow my kids with the video games now. And so, of course, my kids are into it. If a Star Wars game comes out, we're playing it. I'm playing it. Assassin's Creed, the original, I played that. And then I played about half of Assassin's Creed 2. But I have not followed them since then, simply because... I know, A, that if I do this, I'm done. B, it's probably more productive for me to watch more movies and TV and study the craft that I want to do, give my time to those things. Right. Um, and really, that's like that's where I feel like I come to live. My tradition, my thing, uh, especially in the summer, Thursday night, kids go to bed. My wife knows about 10 o'clock. 
typically a little bit earlier than that, I'll go lift some weight and then I'll go to the theater and I'll watch a movie by myself. That's what I love to do is watch movies by myself. And typically every Thursday night, that's what I will do. And so, and then at home, there's some shows that I'll watch with my wife, but then there's a bunch of stuff that like is mine. I get to, I'll, I'll watch by myself because I, re- I don't want to be interrupted. I want to hear the noises. I want to do it by myself because it's important to me. And then there's a few shows like The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, The Wire, the original office that I'll just sort of watch on a loop throughout the year. Mm, I um, just started watching I, the Sopranos for the first time. Didn't mean to interrupt you, but I just started watching. What season are you on? I'm on the first season. Oh my gosh. I'm jealous that you get to watch it for the first time. Cause it is, it's, it's amazing. It's in my opinion, it's the best TV show. I hate ever. that. I missed it and, now that I'm watching it to be honest with you. Yeah. But, but you got so much ahead yeah. of you. It's so good. <laughs> it, 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 it's also to me like the greatest character study ever. I mean, it's such an incredible character study. So dude, have fun with that. But yeah, that's, that's on my yearly watch list, man. In fact, I'll be starting up the Sopranos in just a couple weeks here, man. Yeah. I'll be, I'll be starting it all over again. You can't really realize or appreciate how great James Gandolfini was until you watch it yourself, you know? He's so present. He's never lying to you. He's, and that's what I love about The Sopranos. Nobody is lying to you, ever. It's all, like, it all, like, you can, you can see that they feel every moment. They're never lying. With this Assassin's Creed journey, uh, the game releases, how long before you realize, holy shit, this is actually a big deal? The first glimpse I got was... On day three, I was still in touch with some college students at the time because I used to work at university. Some of the guys were like, are you working on a job right now? I was like, yeah, it's this video game. Oh, what video game? And I said, it's, it's, it's a video game called Assassin's Creed, and they lost their shit. <laughs> they, they freaking freaked out. And even in the room, the director, the writer, like everybody was so chill and so calm. And, you know, looking back, it makes sense. It's like this is a new franchise. You don't know what's going to come out of this. But that game trailer, I think, really set a bar. That specifically made those students so excited for this game. And then, of course, when the game finally came out, the gameplay, the leap of faith, blending in with the crowd. I think Assassin's Creed represented this turn, this really serious... Assassin's Creed, there's no like levity at all. It is a serious game from start to finish. Right. There's a lot of wisdom in there. Like I get fans all the time hitting me up. You know, Altair changed my life. Altair's wisdom still guides me. Like all this stuff. And so it was pretty quickly I realized, holy crap, I think this is big. And then it just took off after that. So requests for convention appearances, fans wanting autographs, that kind of thing all just started after that. And then it was clear, like, man, they had more than a franchise on their hand. Assassin's Creed 2, 3, and then on and on. What were 15 titles in at this point? They took and expanded this this world that started in the Holy Land to all these other places. Like, freaking brilliant. So smart. And, like, endless possibilities. You can just keep going and going. And they keep getting bigger and bigger, you know. They totally do. I was going to ask you about the conventions because uh, Assassin's Creed has a huge following. Voice actors kill at conventions. I was wondering if you just hit those up sometimes. The last big convention that I did was the London Expo just a few years back. It was my first time going to London for an Assassin's Creed event. And here's the thing. This blew my mind, dude. You know, out with a bunch of other voice actors from a variety of different video games, there to be signing. As we walked into the autograph area, the line for Altair, not me, dude, the line for Altair was insane. I'm talking the, the cosplay blew my mind. The moms with their Assassin's Creed books. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I knew it was big. It'd been a while at that point. That really, it turned me. I was like, holy cow, like, this is as important to people as Star Wars was for me growing up. Yeah. And there's yeah. that thing, you know, there, there is that, there'll be that one piece of 
that one franchise, that one movie, that one piece of art that moves you and that sticks with you your entire life. And for so many people out there, Assassin's Creed is that thing. And I totally like, that means a lot to me. Like I totally honor that. So even when fans hit me up on Instagram, I always try and reply, always try and be as kind and, and just warm with fans. Like I had a fan recently talking about, hey, I want to name my son Altair, what do you think? <laughs> how should I? How should I handle that with my wife? And so like, it, it really does mean a lot. And as a result, it means a lot to me. And uh, honestly, dude, like if I could, I would just, I'd go back to Assassin's Creed 2 and play it all the way through. <laughs> as the games get bigger, it doesn't necessarily bury the first one. It, it almost lifts it up because you have all these characters that the universe introduces, but still people are like, you know, I love yeah. Altair or I love Ezio. It's always yeah. those two are the ones you hear first over any of the new ones. Yeah. Hey, Altair is the original assassin. Oh, OG. You don't mess with yeah. him. He, he's the mentor. <laughs> he's the OG. You don't mess with him. He's, he's got the best stuff. It really is a privilege to be attached to this character in this game. It really means a lot to me. So uh, I see a credit here on your list. I got to ask you about. Uh, yeah, Mind of Mencia. <laughs> How did that happen? And what happened, <laughs> dude? So my mind of all things, you're gonna ask me about Mind of Mencia. <laughs> this was another audition for the role of terrorist, Justin. It just was the role of terrorist, <laughs> and uh, it was basically they're doing like some panel interview with, with like somebody from the South, a terrorist, and like somebody from New York or something like that. I sat in the mid, gosh, I'm trying to re remember this thing. I sat in the middle as Mencia just hacked on all of us. That's what it was, <laughs> and we responded. It was basically improv. It was total improv with Mencia, and I watched it once, and that, that was that. That was about the time I started to really like reflect on this sort of double-edged sword in Hollywood that I deal with, which is my origins are Middle Eastern, mm -hmm. but I'm 100%. I was born in this country. I played baseball. You can hear it in the sound of my voice. In fact, I did a two-month, my buddy and I in 1988, we spent two months just walking through the Middle East. Like it was our, it was our pilgrimage together. We just went, backpack, pair of shorts, pair of pants, bathing suit, started in Egypt, went to Israel, went to Jordan, back over the Red Sea, back into the Sinai Peninsula, back wow. down into Cairo. Two months we spent just walking the earth and just going from place to place. Not one Middle Eastern person, every single person, every single national we met was like, you're American. We'd be like, how do you, how do you know? Especially at that time, my beard was pretty thick because I hadn't been shaven. And you know what they'd say, dude? They'd say, I could tell by the look in your eye. We're so blessed to be in this country. And there's that sense of freedom and liberty that apparently they could see in my eyes. They could just tell I was an American. And so in Hollywood, it was surprised that like any agent I talked to, they're like, oh, we can do so many different things. You're totally ethnically ambiguous. Yet I started acting in the post 9-11 era, yeah. right? Even till today, dude, 95% of my auditions are for Middle Eastern themed things. 95% mm -hmm. of them are Middle Eastern accented. And of course, there's a long period of time up, up through this past year, last year, where there's a lot of bad guy roles, a lot of terrorist roles. Even as I reflected on this, this year, going back to college or going back to my senior year of high school, I was always, I've always played the bad guy nearly in everything I've done. Mm -hmm. And certainly that's been the case in Hollywood where most of the time I'm cast as some sort of Middle Eastern bad guy, uh, some sort of terrorist, something like that. So on one hand, I'm super thankful that there is this niche where I can can get work, right? I can get good work. And at the same time, there's so much more that I can do. And I'm so thankful from Assassin's Creed through a variety of different projects, especially up through now, 
I'm getting an op- more opportunities to do things that are not Middle Eastern accent, that are not Middle Eastern themed. My hope is to to really pursue that, do my best to put myself in a position to do that a lot more as well. Right. I know you said you listened to some episode. I don't know if you listened to the one with Brian Thompson. That was a few weeks ago. Uh, he basically said a similar thing to what you said. He was always typecast because of his appearance as the bad guy. And that's something that yeah. he says if he could go back that he wouldn't take some of those roles just to kind of clear his name, I guess. Is that, do you think that you wouldn't, maybe wouldn't take some of those uh, typecast roles going back? And that's a double-edged sword. Yeah. Is that if, if I don't, how can I be involved? Damned right? if you do, damned if you don't sort of Right. Thing. And so the hope is, the hope has been that if I can get on set and do the best job I can, just be a freaking workhorse on the set. And you know, in a lot of this stuff, you want to learn how to die on camera, I'm the guy to teach you. That's 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 what I've done. That like you want to learn how to get shot on camera? I can teach you how to get shot on camera. <laughs> on the last like I just did uh, four, like a four episode arc on SEAL Team last year, and I wore twelve squibs, and you know for two different takes of a really hard fall. It's something I had to learn really mm-hmm. early how to how to take a fall. And what's interesting is that in none of none of the stuff that I've auditioned for have they ever asked if you're fit, if I'm physically fit enough to be able to do A, B, C, or D. It's a good thing that I have been. But yeah, dude, if I had if I don't take these kinds of roles, then what opportunities will I have? The hope is that I can pre- present the best Phil Shabazz I can on set, and that can lead to new opportunities because they've gotten to know me. And that's been, especially with casting directors, that has been a big help. So, you know, Felicia Fazano, she's a hardcore, amazing casting director in LA. And she is like, she doesn't mess around with you. If you stink, she'll be very clear with you. So I remember going in for Showtime Sleeper Cell, and she was like, that was pretty bad, Phil, sorry, see ya. And then she brought me in again. She's like, you know what, great job. That was really, really great. You're not for, you're not right for this part, but that was really, really great. She brought me in a third time. She cast me. By that time, she's getting to know me. She's mm-hmm. getting to know who I am. And then she calls me in for another show, 11th Hour. She calls me in for Californication. Californication pilot, David Duchovny. And on this one, there's only like two lines on this role, but they got to fill it in with improv. It was Middle Eastern themed, but mm-hmm. now I'm, at least I'm speaking English. And they need sort of like an Iranian Persian player. This guy is my best friend. I grew up with this guy my entire life. He's the guy that's like, the best car in the world is a Farving Nugent GTI, plush interior, Bose sound system, Pirelli tire, put the CD in, and we're bumping, man, we're bumping. Like that guy, (laughs) I grew up with that guy, right? I just like showed up to that audition like ready, because I've been ready all my life. And, and booked it in the room. And so that was one of the most fun two days I've ever had because it was two days in the Egyptian theater on sunset, Dave Duchovny and I, and 50 extras. And it was just me hurling insults at David Duchovny for two days and then finally getting into a fight with him and he beats me up. But it was, it was, it was great. And so after that, you know, Felicia was on set, it was a pilot. So we got to know each other some more and then she gave me my first just English accented normal speaking role in the eleventh hour. Who wouldn't like to shit talk Mulder for two days, you know? <laughs> oh dude. It was it was so much fun. And he was great. It was great. Great experience. So Phil, you hit some major T V shows after Assassin's Creed. You know, Grey's Anatomy, I see NCIS. What were some of your experiences like on those larger productions? I really do consider it a privilege anytime you get to be on a Hollywood set. And coming in as a guest it is very, very clear, like there's a community here, there's a family here, you are being invited into this family. You gotta come, you gotta come ready to go. 
And each set is a little bit different. What I've experienced on some of the military stuff is that oftentimes the military sets are pretty like you're out there, you know, in Chatsworth somewhere, everybody's sitting on crates, everybody's sweating, everybody's moving around real fast. It's a little bit less organized than when you're in a studio and on a studio. So for example, NCIS, these folks have been going 18 seasons. Yeah. I mean, they've got it down, right? And so being there with the crew at NCIS was like, the most easy, most calm, most wonderful, like everybody knew exactly what they were doing. I stepped in. Good thing about that day is that like I had four or five pages straight dialogue. Like all it was was me talking to three of the main characters the entire time. So they didn't have to do much and everybody was just really happy. <laughs> so <laughs> that was that was pretty that was pretty pretty that was pretty great. And then of course, you know, Grey's Anatomy, by the time I got there, they're moving quick, they're moving fast. And then of course I talked a little bit about SEAL team. And then of course just recently got to do Bosch Legacy for Amazon Prime. Oh, okay. And Bosch, of course, seven, eight seasons, I think, on Amazon has been really, really fun. People have loved the show. And then, of course, we're very excited when Bosch Legacy was announced. And this time, I got to die in the weirdest way ever. I got drowned <laughs> by a by a gasoline. You know, they, they, t they dragged me to the gas station and then drowned me with the gasoline. And so, in fact, on my Instagram, I did sort of a beat-for-beat beat analysis on how we did that scene because I had so many people asking me, like, how did you... How did you pull this off? Like, how did you not drown? Did you swallow water, et cetera? It's pretty like, I've been shot a lot of times, but that death scene was pretty much the most violent thing I've ever done. When you do watch it, it's pretty, distur wow. it's pretty disturbing. Yeah. So Phil, I've never seen uh, this show, but it looks right up my alley. Tell me about Paranormal. Paranormal, and this is an example of the kind of voice that I'm doing right now. So over the past year, I've done about five or six voice jobs for Netflix. Mm -hmm. Paranormal is like, some sort of Swedish Egyptian production where an Egyptian scientist and people around him end up experiencing ghosts. He ends up experiencing some ghosts and he's got to use his, his medical expertise to somehow, somehow follow the, solve the ghost issue and he does and he's the hero by the end. And so with a lot of these Netflix foreign, so net, what Netflix does, they buy a lot of foreign properties and then dub them into English. Mm -hmm. And so for Paranormal, for example, I came in, dubbed one primary character over the course of the, the show, and then did a lot of other kinds of characters throughout the show as well. Gotcha. Um, which is, you know, it's it's a fun gig to have. Like pretty much at this point, I'm on, you know, I'm just, I'm not auditioning anymore. They just call me and I go in and I'll audition for some crazy Turkish TV show or some Swedish rom-com or whatever it is and, and kick in the voice work. So <laughs> now, because I'm actually made a big transition oh, since COVID, I'm not doing the commercial voice anymore. And for all the, gosh, all the Assassin's Creed fans out there, that experience was so important to me and I love it and would love to do more video games in the future, but it is in front of the camera where I wanna be. There is, there are few things left, Justin, that make my blood pump like the moment before a director says action. When every, there's a hundred people on set and there is $120,000 on the day and everybody looking at you to get your thing right in that moment. That's what I live, that's what I'm chasing. That's mm -hmm. what I live for. And so being in front of the camera is is where I wanna be. So I've really focused on that, especially in the past couple of years. Um, when they call me to do the voice stuff, I do the voice stuff. Now the commercial stuff, I made a pretty hard decision to veer away from the commercial voice. I did a lot of that commercial voice because it's just not what I got into this to do. Right. I remember doing a, was doing two Michelob Ultra spots, 45 seconds each. This should be, dude, it should be 45 minutes to an hour. We should be out of there. 
but the problem is you've got the client in Texas and there's 12 people around the table over there. And then you've got the ad agency in New York and there's 12 people around the table over there. And then you've got the, you know, you've got the director and the producer and, and all those folks at a different location. Then you've got the engineer across the glass and their team. And everybody has an opinion on how they want you to say Anheuser-Busch, St. Louis, Missouri. <laughs> this is, what is, what are we doing here? Like, what, what's happening? I mean, and, and the thing is, look, this is, this is where I know how much I love doing this is because some of the best paying jobs I've had have been on regional voice stuff. Like region, like doing a hospital in Texas, like a yeah. series of six spots in Texas. Some of the biggest paydays I've had have come from commercial voice, but it does not drive me. It does not in any way. And so my gut is all about chasing chasing the camera. And, and that's what I'm going to continue to do. Correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't you say you did some uh, audio books earlier? Yeah, so the biggest one I did was another Middle Eastern themed one. It's called Son of Hamas. It was a New York Times bestseller. It's pretty pretty interesting story about this young man who was born into Hamas, which many folks considered terrorist group in Israel. This young man in Hamas ends up getting captured by the Shen Bet, the Israeli Shen Bet, and then turns and then sort of through his experience turns on Hamas after he realizes, yeah, like they're not doing right by our people. And so he sort of becomes spy counter spy. And basically that's the, you know, I did the audiobook for him. And that was interesting because that was two days, 17 hours in two days. And while we were recording, the FBI, the producer is like, I, I gotta take a call. He's, he's on the phone with the FBI. And the FBI tells him, hey, whoever's doing the book, don't put his name on the book. And so my name is not on the audiobook. Oh, um, by the F by the FBI's recommendation, because this dude is now in asylum here in the United States and is being hunted. And so, like, you don't want to be associated with this. Leave your name off the book. Damn, that's, wild, right? <laughs> that's, that's some heavy stuff. How does the process go? A, a chapter is about fifteen to twenty pages. So you're recording your narration, and you get. I don't know. Maybe you have to cough halfway down the page or something. Do you have to start over or something? Like, how does yeah, that work? You don't, have to, yeah, you don't have to start over completely. But it, man, on this one, so when I auditioned for this, I auditioned in my voice and, and get to, I get booked a job and I get to the job. This was actually recorded in Chicago. So flew out to Chicago and get to the studio, sit down to get started. Got my tea, got my water, ready to go. Been through the book three times. I'm ready to do this. There's obviously a lot of, I'm figuring in my head, there's a lot of Arabic language that needs to be said. I can say it all real credibly, can say it the right way. And the director goes, hey, just for fun, can I hear you say that first paragraph again in a Middle Eastern accent? And so I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> and so I do. And he's like, that's it. Do the whole book that way. And I cannot tell you, pulling an accent off for 17 hours <laughs> like that, that is, that was hard. That was hard work. But basically to your question, we go, you keep going. As long as you're good, you keep going. If the director wants to you to do a different line reading, he pulls you back, he gives you an adjustment, and you keep going. They typically schedule them, especially in, in, in SAG work, of course, I believe it's a four-hour day, like I said with Assassin's Creed, with specific breaks there for your voice. So you can even tell when you listen to an audiobook, you can tell as the narrator's voice is getting rougher as they read mm -hmm. and then and then all of a sudden it changes and it's not even necessarily at a chapter break sometimes it's right in the middle of a chapter their their voice changes and becomes clearer and more lively again and you can hear when they started the next day 
you can hear it in the audiobook. In this particular one, they wanted to move fast, they wanted to move quick, so we had big days. You mess up, you go back to the start of the sentence, and you just keep going until that thing is done. The only stressful part of doing audiobook stuff is if they're going to make you do an accent for seven Yeah, years. That's, that's pretty that's terrible. <laughs> I'm surprised you weren't still talking like that when you went home. Dude, probably for <laughs> a couple <of> weeks. <laughs> so what's been the best advice that you've received thus far in your career? For anybody who wants to pursue acting, wants to be in the business, there is no quiet moment. There's no waiting for the audition. You should be always doing something all the time. If this means something to you, you love this stuff, you should constantly be pursuing something, making something up, even if you don't have auditions. So as an actor, you can sit around all day waiting for the call, right? You're like at the, you know, you're at the mercy of the agent who's at the mercy of the casting director who might like your photo out of a thousand photos that day and pick you as maybe one of a hundred guys to come in. Like, that's what you're at the mercy of. And so if we're serious about this business, we cannot afford to just sit back because whether you're being paid or not, it should not matter. All this stuff I've done, all this stuff I've gotten to do, I consider it a privilege and I would do it for free. I'd do it for free tomorrow. So if I'd be on a Hollywood set for free tomorrow, why can't I be pursuing something at home by myself? And so if you wanna pursue this stuff, you're out there thinking, I wanna be a writer, um, I wanna be an actor, there are things you can do today to get that going. You can do things today that will fill that need or fill that hole inside you. You can start writing right now. Every single person out there has an experience that nobody else has, has a story that nobody else has. Write it down. Even if, it, if, you, if you're not a good writer, start writing it down. Put it down on paper. If you are an actor with our iPhones, we can do anything these days. You can make up your own stuff and do it for yourself. Do it on your own. One of the things I started doing or one of the things I've wanted to do for a while and got the opportunity to do in 2020 when, when COVID shut auditions down was I was like, okay, this is it. This is when I'm gonna start writing. And Justin, one of the things that like a lot of Hollywood folks are involved in real estate on the side. And so mm. I have my realtor's license and I happen to be involved in this specific niche of real estate, which is probate and trust. What that means is that in a trust, the deceased has written all their you know wishes down and it's been written by a lawyer, lawyer and certified by the state. This is, this is, these are the final wishes. And so the house needs to be sold because someone has just passed away. Now in a probate, that typically means that whoever's just passed away did not get their affairs in order. Mm. So now you got family members who are gonna jockey and fight to get that house, to get the paying from grandma, to get whatever it is. And so, excuse me, my experience here in probate and trust is that oftentimes a house represents a winning lottery ticket. Uh, the death of a loved one represents a winning lottery ticket and people will do anything to get that lottery ticket. The stuff I have seen people do and the houses that I've walked into, the situations that I've walked into, doing probate and trust real estate is not just like wearing my, you know, my suit and my tie and like going to an open house with fresh baked cookies. I, that's not the kind of real estate I do. I'm in jeans, I'm in tennis shoes, I might have to climb into an attic. I'm have to run away from somebody. I, who knows? <laughs> I never know what's going to be behind that door when it opens. And I, I give you a real quick example. I walked into a house where a doomsday prepper had just died, and the daughter had already found ten thousand dollars of cash, like hidden in the wall above the laundry. The bathroom was rigged. He had all the materials that the Unabomber used hidden in every spot in the house, every room in the house just in case 
something went down just so he could be prepared. He got off the grid, was using natural gas from his backyard, and he stopped the electricity and was using these little solar panels for lights for every single room. When I walked into his master bathroom, I kid you not, it was completely cut, covered in white powder. Just the whole thing, you couldn't see the floor. It was like this much of white powder. And I was like, what's going on here? And she was like, well, my dad, about five or six years ago, decided that the government was putting cancer in our deodorant. So he stopped using deodorant and started using baby powder. A couple of years back, he just decided he wasn't gonna clean it anymore. It was years of baby powder co coated like to just become part of the bathroom. There was ammunition everywhere, chemicals everywhere, substances like powders in boxes purchased from different states that had not even been opened. Stacks and stacks of military equipment everywhere. We found a hidden panel in the living room, popped it open. There was a bunch of not just AR-15s, we're talking illegal assault rifles in like, this dude was ready to go. <laughs> That's the kind of real estate I do. Sign so, me up. Yeah, HGTV is like the third most popular uh, network in the country. Everybody's addicted to real estate shows, yet there is no dramatic real estate show. And the attorney that I work with is just this, I love him so, I hate him, I love him so much, because he's like that guy, everybody knows that guy that's just like, is so charming and magnetic, he can say whatever he wants, never gets in trouble. He's just like a, like, he's my very own Chris Pratt in a way. Yeah. It's like him and I for years would do these first house visits together and get in these situations <laughs> together. And you just never knew, like, if there was a tombstone that was gonna be in the backyard, if a dog was gonna chase you, if there was gonna be roaches everywhere, like everything, I've seen all of it. And so I wrote a pilot and it all just sort of follows him and I's experience through this crazy real estate. And uh, just sent the pilot and the story Bible to my agent two weeks ago. Got my first producer meeting coming up in a couple weeks from now and I'm super excited about that. And of course I've written myself into the pilot in the hopes that this could be really could be the because it's my voice man yeah. this could really be the way that i could really sort of veer from the middle eastern stuff i hope i really hope that works out for you man that sounds awesome Pretty you, fun. Should, you should start taking a camera on some of these like just to see what <laughs> if i could the problem is like sometimes if you show up with a camera you might get smacked i mean yeah again, true you just have no idea what you're going to walk into. So, Phil, well, you just kind of wrapped this one up for us. What's on the horizon for you that you can tell us about without getting in trouble? Yeah, I'll tell Well, I'll, I'll tell you a couple things that are coming up and then one story for the Assassin's Creed fans, uh, if that's okay. Oh, well, sure. Um, so I just got done filming a pilot for Hulu. I am in, I am NDA'd on these next two things, but I'll tell you as much as I can. On the pilot, it's a, it's a pilot by, it's a show, greenlit show on Hulu by Peter Siegel. I don't know if you've seen Pam and Tommy on Hulu. I haven't. Um, sort of follows the, the arc of Pam and Tommy's relationship and the sex tape that went out. And it is, it is a great show. It is wild. And if you lived through the 90s, you knew about that Pam and Tommy sex tape. It oh, was yeah. everywhere all the time. Um, it was an incredible show. Well, he got another period piece greenlit. This period piece takes place in Hollywood in the late 70s, early 80s. And I just, I got to play this part of just a, a famous Hollywood character in okay. the eighties. And so that was a ton of fun and got to also do some improv as well. Um, coming up here in August, I'll be doing, I'll be reoccurring on a pretty popular TV show. And I'm pretty, I'm, and again, I'm, ND, I'm really sorry. I have ND8 on this one as I well. I hear it every, all the time, man. That's all yeah, good. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, it's I'm super excited about it. Uh, we'll be leaving the state to shoot this one, and uh, I think I'm doing three episodes of this upcoming season with likely recurrences coming up in, in later seasons. But you never know. We'll see. Um, but that's what's coming up on the horizon right now. Quick story for the Assassin's Creed fans. So back in 2008-ish, I had this buddy, and this guy, like, I met him on one of the first short films that I did, and he, him and I connected right away, huge movie lover. Uh, it ended up, our, our friendship was like, we'd get on the phone and just talk movies for three hours, right? Mm-hmm. And he was, he's a huge, like, I don't know anybody who loves Michael Bay more than this buddy. He just is a massive Michael Bay fan, like everything. This, like, everything shot at sunset, all the, the close-ups <laughs> of the rear ends, like the whole thing, down with Michael Bay. And so when Michael Bay was going to do Transformers, like he flipped out. Like his two loves, Michael Bay and Transformers, are coming together, and he's just like the biggest fan of the original Transform- <laughs> that Transformers movie by Michael Bay. And so I get this invitation to go down to Sony Pictures to do an FX screening of uh, Transformers. All the, like, the, the whole cast is going to be there, Michael Bay is going to be there, um, I think it was ILM is going to be there to do a whole FX breakdown in preparation for the Oscars. And I was like, I, I got to invite my buddy. And, and I did. <laughs> and he freaking flipped out. Like he was so excited. We get over there and it is an incredible presentation. Michael Bay is there, Megan Fox, Shia LaBeouf, like they're all there. They do the whole thing. Um, the FX team gets up there. They do their whole breakdown, like of all the different kinds of like award screenings I've been to. It was really a high end, fun, fun event completely crowded big reception afterwards with all kinds of booze and food and and they gave out copies of the dvd it was just a ton of fun so my buddy and i are, are standing at one of those bar top tables just having a beer and having a you know an hors d'oeuvre or whatever and michael by michael bay walks by and like a group of girls like young 20 somethings are following him he's like oh dude i get can i i want to go ask his, him for his autograph and i was like please dude please don't not here not at this event he's like okay and then michael bay walks back and the girls like follow in tow and he's like i'm gonna go do it and he just just takes off and leaves me by myself so my buddy takes off after michael bay and i'm standing at this bar top by myself and this dude on a phone in in, in a suit goatee sunglasses sidles up to the table with with an attractive woman in i don't know in their 40s maybe you know late 40s and he's on his phone they they sidle up to the bar top they're standing right next to me but they're not acknowledging me he's on his phone he's doing his business and and the ladies there with him seems pleasant but not talking to me and then he gets off the phone and and they're sort of doing their chatter and he goes hey man what's up and i was like oh hey how are you and he's like oh no doing good doing good do you, you like the presentation i was like oh yeah man that was really really cool what'd you think and I was, he's like yeah it was really great really enjoyed it and then and then i go uh so what guild are you with are you here with sag or and, and he he looks at me cockeyed and he goes yeah i'm with sag and the lady with him is like <laughs> she got this weird look at her face and uh and i said oh and the way he said it like set me off i was like okay this guy's this guy wants to you know be an a-hole i can i can handle this so i was like okay i'm sorry well what have i seen you in he's like oh i just you know got done with a, a movie called zodiac i don't know if you've seen zodiac uh, i was like you know what i have not but i hear it's an incredible film congratulations that's that's amazing 
And then, and then I said, I'm sorry, I, I didn't, I don't recognize you. And he's like, well, it's okay. And, and, and then she's like, well, he's, he's been out of the picture for a while. He spent some time in rehab. And I was like, okay, well, I really apologize. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I didn't see you. And then, and then my buddy gets back to the table. Right about the time I go, and he's like, what about you? Are you in anything? And it was just so cocky, I couldn't help myself. I go, yeah, man, I play a Middle Eastern assassin in the Holy Land that goes around killing dudes who look just like you. And then my buddy goes, and then just grabs me and takes me, right? And he's like, what's wrong with you? He's grabbing my arm and just trying to get out of there as fast as possible. And I was like, what's wrong with you, man? That guy was a jerk. He's like, dude, that's Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> and I turn around and he takes his glasses off and he does one of these. And I was like, oh man, it is Robert Downey Jr. Holy crap, I didn't know. And here's the thing, y'all have to understand my position here. This is pre-Iron Man Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, yeah. It's a whole is, different world. Is, but he's he's got the goatee. This is right when all the Iron Man stuff is just taken off. The goatee is there. He's looking like Tony Stark, but that's not an Iron Man I'd ever seen. Not a not yeah. Robert Downey Jr. I'd never ever right. seen before. And I just, after that, I was like, oh my gosh, I feel like such an idiot. And then, of course, <laughs> he becomes the Robert Downey Jr. we know today. And I was on hold for the original Iron Man, but did not end up getting the part. And it just... Someday, if I ever see him again, I'll have to, you know, uh, grovel uh, for forgiveness. <laughs> oh, so, anyway. I'll tie you versus Iron Man. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Phil, it's been a pleasure talking to you, man. Thank you so much for giving me some of your time. Oh, Justin, that was a ton of fun, man. I really appreciate it. I hope you have a great day, man. Can't wait to can't wait to keep listening to your stuff, man. It's a ton of fun, ton of resourceful stuff. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. You have a great night. Go get some dinner. I'm going to do the same. All right. See you, man. All right. Bye bye. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.